Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, your host, and if you've arrived here, there must be a reason. I'm guessing you're curious to learn more about improving your well-being alongside ADHD, or maybe looking for some advice or guidance to feel healthier and calmer. So why start this podcast? I'm a well-being and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and I discovered my own ADHD alongside one of my daughters at the age of 40. And now, after supporting many other women just like me, and probably you, I feel there's a need for more emphasis on well-being and lifestyle help for women with ADHD. And through the podcast, I want to offer you new insights and perspectives to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and balanced life. So wherever you are on your ADHD journey, my aim is to support you in finding the awareness and the most aligned tools to enhance your well-being so you can make the most intentional mindset and lifestyle choices moving forwards. Ready to get started? Here's the episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm delighted to have another brilliant and eminent guest here, someone that I've been wanting to speak to for a long time. Our plans got derailed by COVID a few months ago, so we are back for uh, part two or take two even. And so I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Marcy Caldwell, who is a wife, she's a mum, and she's also a clinical psychologist and passionate ADHD advocate based in Philadelphia in the States. And she is the owner and director of Rittenhouse Psychological Services and also the founder of Adept.org. And this is a blog and a digital resource which is helping adults with ADHD create a life that works for and not against their brains, exactly what so many of us need. Thank you so much, Marcy, and welcome to the podcast. You're welcome, and thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. Oh, I'm glad that we actually got there this time, mm-hmm. and we're here. We've got <laughs> so much to talk about because I've got a long list of things that I know I want to ask you, and I know for a fact that my my audience will be really interested in for themselves. And I think the main thing that I contend with for myself, and from speaking to a lot of my clients, is f- from a woman. I think we're already on the back foot a bit with hormones, and then when we have ADHD and emotional dysregulation, we feel that we're often not in control of our emotions. And it can feel really um, debilitating that we're not in control of ourselves, that we want to behave like an adult, and sometimes we don't. So, I mean, I know that's a core area of your work, isn't it, is helping people manage their emotions. And um, I guess, stop them from feeling derailed by this kind of roller coaster of emotions. Can you tell me a little bit more about, I guess, why do, why do we suffer from this with ADHD? Where does it stem from? Yeah, exactly. It is such a struggle. Um, you know, and so often we talk about all these like practical and regulatory strategies for ADHD, but the emotional and yeah, probably even more so for women because of the addition of hormones, but really kind of across the board, the emotional is such a huge part of the ADHD experience. And so the reason for this is that ADHD brains, they process emotions a little bit differently than neurotypical brains. Um, And so they have this experience of this kind of like zero to 60 with emotions, right? Like I'm totally fine. I'm totally fine. And then ah, I'm freaking out. 
And the reason that that happens is for a variety of ADHD-specific brain functions, right? So I like to think about kind of a path that an ADHD brain goes on between feeling totally fine and feeling totally not okay. And that path including some ADHD specifics like a brain that doesn't filter out external information, external stimuli very well. Um, You know, neurotypical brains kind of have this filter that will keep a lot of the extraneous stuff out. ADHD brains tend not to, and so they kind of walk around oftentimes overstimulated, right? And so people experience this as like an itchy tag in their shirt and that being kind of un- untenable, right? Or n- loud noises, you know, these things that other brains may be able to filter out, ADHD brains don't. It's also, it's part of the reason why they have this, this like novel problem solving and big picture ideas, right? Because they get to see it all. And they get the good and the bad of that. So they're walking around kind of overstimulated. And then, so they're a little bit closer to the edge already. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's that on-off switch that happens with ADHD brains. So again, this, and I hate comparing ADHD brains to neurotypical brains, but the reason why I do it is that the world is built for neurotypical brains. And so I think it's important to kind of know how things are different. So a neurotypical brain, if you think about it as like a one of those soundboards out of like fancy sound studio with all those dimmer switches. Mm-hmm. And so it can kind of be a little bit here, you know, put a little bit of energy into this thing and a whole lot into this one. And I'm going to put some focus here, right? It can kind of be in between on things. ADHD brains don't do in-betweens very well. Their soundboard is more like full of on-off switches, right? And so while they don't have an on-off switch for emotions, they do have an on-off switch for attention. So that that stimulation is building, the um, emotion is building, and it reaches a level where it turns the attention to that, to that emotion on, and that attention switch flips. And it's now like, oh, okay, I see the emotion. And then it's not filtered, so then it starts flooding. It's like now all I can see is the emotion, yeah. right? And so it goes from the zero all the way to the 60 in what feels like an instant because of that on-off switch. Um, it is actually a building, but it feels like an instant because of that on-off switch. Yeah, that is so interesting because I mean I completely resonate with all of what you said and I love that analogy and actually just recently I I had this kind of I think for myself I absorb a lot absorb a lot and it does feel like I'm taking a lot on and and then all of a sudden something just tips me over the edge and I just get completely overwhelmed um and and I'm that's when I feel like I should be able to control my emotions better but I know that it's been building up and building up and, and makes you feel that you can't cope, doesn't it? It just it makes you mm-hmm. kind of question, you know, what what kind of resilience have I got? What what kind of coping strategies have I am I sh- should I be putting in place? When actually it is just a sensitivity to so much, isn't it? And and not being able to drag well tone down some of the stuff we don't need to absorb. Is is there a way that we can learn to 
I guess, only, I guess, create a filtration system <laughs> for our brain? How do, how do we do that? Yeah, because, you know, even as you were saying that, you were saying, like, I absorb so much and I wish I could manage things better. But as you're absorbing, you're managing, right? You're absorbing, you're taking in, you're taking in, and you're, and you're managing it. The thing is that the way you're managing it is by not looking at it, right? By your attention not being focused on it. So I find that one of the, one of the strategies to kind of keep it more, more chill more of the time is to actually look at it more right? To do less of this, like, let me damn away all these feelings. Let me keep the flow of, of difficult emotion away from me by kind of creating this dam against it. And when we do that, it kind of creates other issues. But if instead we actually look at these things that are kind of overstimulating, then you can manage them while they're still manageable, right? And so I often encourage people to really look around them and see what are these things that do frequently overstimulate me, that are kind of flooding in on a somewhat regular basis that I might be able to come up with some creative problem solving to kind of get to minimize or get out of my life, right? So for example, my husband has ADHD. He finds my dog's bark absolutely like the worst thing ever, right? I don't like it, but it doesn't bug me that much. And he doesn't bark that often. Um, but he barks when you come in the house. Um, and so, you know, we've tried a couple different things. We can't get the dog to stop barking when we come in the house. Um, but one of the things that we do is that I go in first. Um, he barks while I'm in the house and, and my husband's, you know, getting stuff out of the car. And he's gotten all his barks out by the time my husband gets in, right? And so there's just kind of, you know, this is one of the things mm -hmm. that, that can get his levels up to kind of, I'm about to burst <laughs> range. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if God forbid he comes in, the dog's barking and, and then the kids start fighting, you know, yeah. um, it, it, it's the end. Um, and so if he can kind of separate from it. And so there are a variety of ways that you can do this, right? You can, if noises are something that's really big, you can wear um, earplugs. And there are lots of earplugs that don't drown everything out, right? That just kind of make it a little bit more mild. Blue light glasses. There are so many different strategies for kind of dampening down this overstimulation, tagless shirts, all these things. If we can kind of lower that overstimulation, it can make it a lot more manageable. And of course, we can't take them all away. But if you can take the ones that you can away, then, then that overall level is lower. And then the ones that you can't take away, if you actually turn towards them and see what they are, and rather than trying to kind of ignore them and turn away from them, then you're more able to actually affect some change rather than it just kind of constantly coming at you. Yeah. And I know what you were saying then, they're great tips. And I was thinking about, you know, myself, definitely when you've had a busy day at work and you've been racing and, you, and I spend my day racing, you know, like busy mum as, as many other women are, wanting to tick all the jobs off and get your work done and know that you've got sort of like a finite time between 
you know, when you have to go and get your kids, you come back from school and you have to kind of give them the focus that they want to make sure there's dinner, homework, all that. I find that if I don't have a buffer period between picking my kids up and finishing all my work, and very often I don't, so I will still be doing emails while I'm waiting for them to come out, or I haven't picked up the shopping and I have to get race from the, the, the kids to the shopping, that's where my emotional regulation goes, my, my, my mm-hmm. patience, my tolerance. So I have to constantly, it's like a daily check-in of my schedule of what can I do? Where can I put that buffer in? How can I ease some of that, I guess, the, the overwhelm so my kids don't bear the brunt of it? Because, you know, I love my mum, but I remember my mum, there was a lot of emotional dysregulation. I remember lots of shouting and lots of things that she would say that she, I can't cope with this. And I try so hard to not do that. I can't stop my kids from having a huge argument and throwing things at each other. Like that just, that will happen. And if you've got kids in the house, they're going to have tantrums. They're going to erupt. There's going to be arguments, but I try for myself to know how to react. So instead of kind of like reacting straight away, it's giving myself a bit of time to respond to how I'm going to deal with this situation. But if I haven't given myself that buffer or haven't allowed myself some time to have a cup of tea or go for a walk or maybe just just do like five minutes of breathing, I know I can probably exacerbate the situation. And then there's just like all hell in the house, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with with yourself or clients. And I'm sure that people are listening, you know, can this is a podcast for real talk. And I don't want to gloss over some of the stuff that we're all dealing with. So emotional dysregulation, it's not going to go away, is it? But we, with the knowledge of ADHD and the knowledge of how our brain works, exactly what you said about small things that we can, you know, muffle the external noises or sensations that can help us kind of move forward would you say it is a daily check-in it's intentional you know things that we do to help ourselves so and and then obviously modeling that to our children if we our children have got ADHD would you say that's probably the right way to start yeah definitely and I love the buffer idea I think that you know having that moment where you can shed the things that had overstimulated you before, before you go into the next things that are about to stimulate you. Um, it, it's such a brilliant idea. And I think we, we all need to do that in between things, right? That so often that is the tendency of moms. We go one thing to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, because we have 5 million things to do. And that ends up leaving us kind of breathless and things pile up. They're most likely to explode at home, right? Where where we don't have as many kind of social barriers to kind of keep things tamped down. Um, and, and of course, and, you know, and this is kind of what you're talking about in the beginning of kind of how emotions kind of derail us, right? That, that in those instances, like, at home for a lot of us, that's our top priority, right? Like we want to be the best moms we could possibly be. Um, We want to be the best wives we can possibly be. And that's our value. And yet, because it's kind of the comfortable space, because, 
it doesn't have quite the pressures involved, that's where kind of the explosions happen. That's where, you know, we take from basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so by creating that buffer, by creating that space where you take off the stimulation of one before you basically take on the stimulation of another, I think you allow yourself to show up, um, you know, in a way that goes towards your values and intentions and goals rather than away from them. Yeah, yeah. And I I was just thinking for me, it's definitely, I didn't realize how overstimulated I am when I'm on my phone. Mm. And that I've tried really hard now to just put it away. So I'm not tempted to scroll. Sometimes I'll just pick up my phone and forget why I've picked it up. Think, you know, gone to pick it up, but check my emails and actually I just get distracted again on, on Instagram. But I know that even if I can't feel it at the time, that is doing something to my brain that is overstimulating me. So when someone asks me a question and I don't answer and they go, mum, and I'm like, what? And they're like, well, I've just asked you the question twice. And and I obviously hadn't processed it. But when they shout at me, I shout back straight away because I was straight in hyper-focusing on scrolling on something that's overstimulating me at the best time. So I've recognized that now. And I try and put my phone away because I don't want to be tempted. And I think that's probably, you know, these little habit changes, just adaptations to what we think potentially can lead us to that hyper emotional dysregulation. That is, is probably, you know, ways that we can help ourselves more than we think, because we kind of don't even know when we're scrolling or if we've got to, I know for myself, I I talk about WhatsApp groups all the time because before I was diagnosed with ADHD, I couldn't understand why I would get so overwhelmed when someone would add me to another WhatsApp group. And I've got four kids, so there's a lot of WhatsApp groups of lots of things going on, school, rotors, after school activities. But then I see all the communication between them And it's like, oh my goodness, I can't do this because I know how much concentration and involvement has to be, you know, I have to take to respond and make sure that I know what arrangement and what birthday party. So sometimes I'm just like, you know what, I can't deal with that now because my kids need me, they've got homework, or I've got to be on a podcast in 20 minutes and I need my, my head like clear. So maybe this is my, you know, a long-winded way of me trying to invite anyone that's listening to, to notice where you start feeling a bit agitated, where your the heart starts pounding a bit more, because that, for me, it's always in my body what, when I can feel the overwhelm. Like you say, that naught to sixty, where we think it comes out of nowhere, but actually I can feel it bubbling up a little bit more, and that's just purely awareness now that I've, I've noticed that I can feel it in my shoulders. I can feel the tension. I can feel, like I said, the palpitations and I know I'm on course to being derailed. Uh, and so, yeah. So I just wondered what you, what you thought of that kind of assessment of, of what I do. Yeah. You know, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. The more you work on this more, the more you tune into it, the more you start to understand what falls between zero and 60, right? And the cool thing about how we're all made is that our bodies go along with our emotions. Um, And we get to a point where the body basically takes over at 60, our body takes over and our brain isn't really all that involved. And 
we're in full flood mode, right? And and so your heart's really racing and you can't kind of rationalize through anything. Um, and I, I call it the red zone. Um, but there, but even before we get to that kind of body takeover stage, the body is still starting to ramp up, right? And that breath gets a little bit more shallow and the muscles get a little bit more tight and your shoulders kind of go up. And there, there's just a little bit more activation in your body. And as you start to really kind of start to notice this and look at what's going on with your emotions, what's going on, what are the things that are intervening and kind of making things worse, you'll start to also tune into your body and you'll start to figure out like, oh, these are my red flags. These are the things that are saying, I'm at 40, right? <laughs> 60 is not too far away. Um, and, and when we start to kind of see those red flags, then you're given the opportunity to kind of step back. Um, and it all feels like kind of mysterious at first. And it's like, what are these people talking about? I'm fine or I'm not fine. And there's nothing in between. But I, but as you've seen, like the more you look at it, the more you start to see that gray area in between and the more you mm -hmm. start to be able to notice it in your life. Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool if we had a speedometer that like on us where we could mm -hmm. just see, you know, and we would like take our foot off the pedal a little bit, but actually that we can tune into that a bit more, exactly what you just said. There is, there is options. It's just maybe taking those things that are distracting us um, from noticing what's going on in our body. Uh, and I, I know that I'm working on it and I have been working on it and, and it does help. It really does help. I know now that if I can feel it building up, and I, my kids have driven me a bit mad. My patience is like really like at the bottom. My tolerance is also the same. My husband's in. I'm like, I'm going to go and walk the dog. You deal with this tantrum because I know mm -hmm. that if I deal with it, it's going to escalate. And that's when we do a bit of a tag team because I kind of think, well, there's, you know, if this situation doesn't need two parents, and I know there's a lot of single parents listening and they can't do that. And I, and I really do, you know, send my empathy to them. But if you've got an opportunity to step away from the situation that is going to, you know, it's already a red flag and things are going to escalate. I would always say, you know, take a breather, even if you are a single parent and you're at home with your child. Something that I always say to my clients and something I do for myself is some tapping, some EFT, and I'll go into my, go into the toilet or go into another room and the tapping on the acupressure points, uh, the meridian points, which is so calming, it reduces the cortisol in your body. So you are literally going straight into your body, you're reducing the, that cortisol, and you're able to do some breath work with it. I mean, I've got a video on my, on my website where it's literally a three minute tapping video where we're just doing, you know, breath work, tapping. It allows you to get back into your body, it's, it grounds you takes you away from that kind of those irrational thoughts and just helps bring a bit of perspective to the situation because very often we're so in the situation that we don't really react properly but it kind of allows you to hover over a little bit for three minutes you walk out the room and you go okay right I'm going to deal with this in a, in a more rational calm way which I guess we all want as adults we want to behave in a calm rational way we want our children to see it and, and we want to model for our children that this is how we want to behave. So 
I, w- I would say that if in doubt, go for a walk. And if not, do some tapping or do both. Sometimes I've been known to go for a walk and do the tapping while I'm walking and make sure that the coast is clear and people can't see me. But it really does work. Um, so, so yes, I, I'd be interested. Do you ever use tapping or EFT for, for any emotional regulation? So I don't, I'm not, I'm, I haven't been trained in it, but I have certainly heard um, some wonderful things about it. And I, I know the basics of it. And I think you're right. There's, there's a lot involved in it that um, lines up with kind of some of the basic psychological principles that I've been talking about in terms of um, reducing the physiological buildup um, and separating enough to kind of get that rational brain back on board. Um, and what you're suggesting is something that I often suggest too, just in a slightly different way um, of like, I agree that, you know, there's such a privilege, those of us who are partnered have such a privilege and kind of tapping out of uh, any given situation. But if if you're not partnered or if you just happen to be alone at the moment, um, you know, I often suggest kind of taking a time out and I will actually say to my kids, like, mommy's taking a time out <laughs> um, and I'll just go in the other room. That's the signal to my kids that like, I'm at my limit and they better start <laughs> getting back in line. Um, and it gives me a moment and it is modeling to them of like, okay, I'm, I'm recognizing where I am and I'm taking the steps that I need to take in order to kind of bring myself back to a place where I can handle this situation. And that's what I want for my kids, right? Because they're going to get overwhelmed. They're going to get in, in bad spots too. And I want them to be able to step away. Um, and so, you know, I, I think whether you can tap out to a partner or just take a time out, um, either one is a great model for kids. Um, but I also, I think that kind of stating it to them, particularly if they're the ones annoying you, <laughs> um, is a really great strategy because it kind of brings them into the situation and shows them what's going on. Um, as opposed to just kind of like slinking away. Yeah, absolutely. That they need, they should know because we mm-hmm. want to, you know, equip them with the right emotional resilience tools for themselves. So I'm just interrupting today's podcast because I want to let you know about a brand new program that I'm relaunching towards the end of January 2024. And I've got a sign up page on my website right now. I have to say this is probably one of my most exciting programs so far. This is all about changing the energetics from within and changing our stories, releasing old blocks, old conditioning and creating a new future, visualizing a new way of being and really letting go of the things that have been holding us back. This is all about our spiritual growth leaning into what feels right to us and not doing all the shoulds and the needs and the comparing and working on the internal dialogue and the stories and the words that we say to ourselves. But often we find it very difficult to get there. So in this program, it's going to be me holding you accountable, motivating you, giving you practical, but also spiritual and energetic ways of shifting the dials, changing the way we think and the stories that we tell ourselves and the words that we use 
it will be probably a 45 minute workshop every two weeks for about three or four months. So I'm going to be sort of handholding you, helping you make decisions and choices that feel right and aligned with you. This is stepping into your most truthful, authentic version of you and changing this reality and really leaning into a different way of being now that you have more awareness. I really believe that this is something that I've been working on for for many years and I can't wait to finally share some of the tips and the ways that I have helped change how I show up in the world because it's very different to how it was five years ago. I'm really going to be creating a community of people who are ready to step out of a mentality that feels like the world has been doing things to them and start taking action and charge from a place that feels good to you. And this is not about doing, this is about being, this is about feeling. So if you really don't align with this sort of action and goal setting and sort of new new year resolutions, this may be a much softer approach for you and really work with our neurodivergent minds. So head to my website, you're going to see on the homepage, a sign up page. If you just put your name and email address there, I promise you that when this is all live and I've got all the details, you guys are going to be the first people to get it. Now back to today's episode. I wanted to talk to you about um, rejection sensitivity dysphoria because we've talked about it a little bit over the different episodes, but I would love to be able to kind of like, you know, dive a little bit deeper into, um, I guess, why, again, our brains are, are more kind of aligned with, with feeling rejection and criticism and failure much harder. You, you know, I, I, I had a client the other day who didn't know about RSD. She she had been diagnosed and she said, oh, I've got this theme that keeps running through my, my life. And she explained to me that she was always terrified of, of rejection and criticism. And she put it to her personality. It was always part of her personality. It was a personality flaw that she was just too sensitive. And she was always, she never quite pushed herself because she was so terrified of failure. And I told her about RSD and I sent her some articles and podcasts. And so she could understand that it wasn't a failure on her behalf. It wasn't a character flaw. So I guess if someone's listening now and they are waiting to be assessed, they've not yet had their diagnosis or they've just been diagnosed and are just learning now about all the components of ADHD. How would you explain RSD to someone who's just learning about it now? Yeah, so RSD is is a term um, that was put forth by Dr. William Dobson um, to define the specific type of rejection sensitivity that ADHDers have. Um, the there is rejection rejection sensitivity in several different um, neurological types, but um, ADHD's rejection sensitivity tends to kind of draw, it tends to have an impact on productivity as well. So um, the ADHD brain is more sensitive to rejection. Um, that is both perceived rejection, um, anticipated rejection, and true real life in the moment rejection, right? Um, and criticism and failure, all the same way too, in terms of um, anticipated um perceived and and real life present um and so it 
it is neurologically more sensitive to it, um, partly from that filterlessness, um, you know, in that it's, it is, it's like a, a bruise, right, that is present from birth, that if you just brush up against it, it feels like somebody's kicked you, right? And so it, the brain is more sensitive to it, it's kind of neurologically more sensitive, but then there's also a history that makes it even harder. So the oftentimes people with ADHD brains, they growing up have some more social difficulties. Um, this isn't a universal experience, but it's very common because the ADHD brain is often has a developmental lag. Um, and so developmentally, you may be two or even three years kind of behind your peers, which then leads to kind of some difficult social mismatches. And so people with ADHD have more um, childhood experience with rejection and isolation um, and social disruption, which then accentuates this kind of bruised brain that it already is born with. And so then when you get this scenario, you then get a brain that's like, oh, I'm really sensitive here. I need to make sure I protect myself. And so it then goes looking for rejection out in the world, right? To protect itself against it. And there's a lot of ambiguous information out in the world right? That you walk into a room and there are a bunch of, you know, you walk into a PTA meeting, there's a bunch of other moms who are chatting, you know, some of them, but they, you know, maybe one looks at you, but then keeps talking. Feels like rejection, um, particularly when you have this history and when you have this kind of bruised brain. Um, and, but it, what could it, you know, it could be that, she just looked up and didn't actually like process who, who you were. Um, could be that she was in the middle of like a deep conversation. Somebody was saying something important. She had to like get right back to it, right? There's so many different explanations. And, but the ADHD brain, because of its history and because it's trying to protect itself, is hyper aware and looking for possible rejection out in the world. And so then it gets hurt again, right? It's hurt by this perceived rejection. Um, and that bruise gets deeper. And this just happens over and over and over again. And then people start saying, well, I'm not going to put myself out there at all because it's so painful. It's so painful to just walk into a room. Um, and so I'm not going to put myself out there at all. And they end up kind of limiting their life because they're so afraid of that pain that's going to come in, you know, whether, whether or not people are actually re rejecting you. Yeah, that's so beautifully put. And, and I love that um, terminology, the bruised brain, because you're absolutely right. It can, it's, you know, stems from childhood. And like you say, even if it's not manifested in you know, this a social social way. It could have happened at school with what a teacher said, or you know, trying something at sports and saying, "Oh, you're not a sports player, or you shouldn't be in team sports." There's so many different ways, and you know, that 
leads to so many women, I think, feeling like they're not good enough at work. They've got imposter syndrome. They don't want to put themselves forward for promotions. Or I know I had someone who was terrified every time she got an email from her boss, convinced her boss was going to pick up on something that she hadn't done, that she was always because she had one one time she had a boss who did give her some negative feedback. And ever since then, it was like, well, I'm going to get found out again. They're going to find something. And so she was on totally hypervigilant the whole time. And to a point where she was just in this constant state of stress at work because she felt that she was going to be, someone was going to pick something out that she'd not, she'd written wrong. So it can show up in so many different ways and it, it can be very detrimental. But when, again, it's, it's all awareness, isn't it? When we know about it and we understand where it stems from, and we can see that there is, there's evidence, you know, we've got evidence as, as children that we felt like this, or we had that situation. So that's why I feel like this, but because we've got this bruised brain, then we, we, we do feel it a lot more, isn't it? It's like constantly like being hit in the same place over and over again. It's, it's going to hurt more and more. Um, And I guess, I guess as women, and I'm going to go back to hormones again, because I know that my RSD sometimes flares up a lot more at certain times of the month. So sometimes something that my husband might say is, I just, whatever. But sometimes he say, says it's like a specific time of the month. It just feels so painful or so, I'm so angry. And I'm I guess it's it's just part of being a woman with ADHD that we have to contend with this. Is there anything that you advise your patients or clients when when they do feel RSD is taking over their life? How how can they help themselves? Yeah, so the the awareness is huge, right? Um, and an awareness of cycles is huge too. Um, you know that I I always advocate people tracking. Um, their cycle, because I think knowing where you are, you know, there, there's a very regular pattern that happens with our hormones in regards to a cycle. And for those of us privileged enough to have regular cycles, um, they, you know, we can kind of track the days where things aren't going to be so good. Um, and, when we know that, we can put the protections in place, right? So I know there's a day and there happens to be, <laughs> the, there's a voice in my head um, on the very particular day and it, I'll wake up and I'll be like, why can't everyone just leave me alone? And like that plays over and over again, like just leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. <laughs> I'll get an email, leave me alone, right? Um, and um that is my signal. Um, I also track it on my phone, so it warns me two days before that day um, that this is the day that I need to kind of insulate myself as much as possible, right? And so I'm not going to put myself out there. I'm not going to do big, hard things. I'm not going to go on podcasts. I'm like, I'm not going to do things on that day, right? I'm going to kind of keep things minimal. I'm going to be as nourishing to myself as possible. Um, and knowing that I'm more vulnerable. Um, and, and I think the more we are aware of AR cycles and B kind of the other aspects 
of our lives that make us more vulnerable in one way or another emotionally, right? Whether you're overstimulated, overwhelmed, whether you've had a super stressful day or week at work, when we're kind of aware and and honestly, you know, going back to your buffer zones, um, particularly screen-free buffer zones, they allow us to tap into our, our bodies, which do give us that speedometer, right? And so if you, if you are actually t- put your phone down, if you're in the pickup line for school and you put the phone down and you take a couple deep breaths, you're going to know where you are in that speedometer. And when you mm-hmm. know that, then you can choose your next action, right? Because if you're at 50, then you're going to want to take some deep breaths before you get up to the front of that pickup line. Mm. Um, if, Especially if you know, you've been late and you've raced yeah, there. Exactly. <laughs> um, and if you're at 50 and you're late and you've raced there and you get up to the front of the pickup line, you know, you can tell your kids the minute they get in the car, like, hi, guys, love you. Mommy just needs a moment. <laughs> Hold on. Right. You can you can take that space that you need in order to kind of come back down to a 10, 20 or 30. Um and and same with rejection, you know, that if you're taking that space, if you know where you are, then you can, you know, kind of choose what your action is from there. So if you are walking into that PTA meeting and you kind of take a deep breath and ground yourself for a moment before you walk in and you're like, ooh, I'm already at 45. Um then then you know like okay i'm going to be more likely to see rejection places so i'm either going to try to kind of put my blinders on and just like go to the my seat and not really kind of look around me um or i'm i'm going to um i don't know go home <laughs> um or i'm just going to really work on like talking myself through this um and knowing that you know, that I might be seeing more rejection than as present. Yeah, yeah. But what you said I really loved is that you have that one day or at least a day where you know you don't book anything in, you don't do anything challenging. But it'd be interesting to know if we could reframe that day as almost like a, that's our kind of self-care day where we don't book meetings in, we try and reduce whatever we can. We, if we can go back and to bed, we can get a book whatever we can do to insulate ourselves, that could almost be like a day we look forward to every month. That is a day where we have to ourselves, we don't put any pressure or expectations. If we can organize a play date for our kids after school, like anything that we can do that we have once a month, that is almost like our opportunity to regroup and um, refresh and re-energize ourselves. I mean, how wonderful, instead of always dreading that day and thinking, oh my God, what's it gonna bring? Like, you know, what what kind of shit storm's gonna happen today? It could be like, that is my day where I honor myself. So thank you for for bringing a bit more awareness around that because I, I think it could be a really helpful reframe for a lot of people. Yeah, I love that idea. And, you know, just in the same way that having a sick day can sometimes feel almost like delicious, right? Like, we don't want to be sick. But when we're sick enough that we actually take a day off, it's like, oh, my God, that was kind of amazing. (laughs) Um, If we can plan those in, um, and, 
yeah, give yourself the permission to send the kids over to your neighbor's house and, you know, not do the big hard things that day, knowing that you're about to have two great weeks and, you know, your energy is going to be high really soon. Um, and it happens that way every month and we can count on it. And I know that's something that you you do with uh, your programs is teaching people to work with their brains. And, and I think especially if you've been diagnosed later on in life, I know that there is a pattern of just being constantly in resistance, just being in resistance, like, why can't I do this? I should, 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 or why is it not as easy for me? But then it's that freeing moment of just allowing, allowing ourselves just to kind of be who we are and make some tweaks and adaptions, adaptations, um, adjustments, and then know that we can move forwards in life with a bit more ease and a bit more effortless it's making it a bit more effortless as opposed to it feeling like this grind constantly so whether it's to do with you know rejection sensitivity or you know emotional management the point of this podcast and definitely speaking to experts like yourself is to just bring so much more awareness to my listeners especially when they're just you know on the very beginning stages of this this journey because we could have spent our whole lives wondering what's going on like why why am I the one that always does this and then we get these explanations which is the first stage and then it's like okay now what 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 can we do to tweak so I just want to thank you so much for for your time today you're welcome thank you so much it's been so fun can can you tell your my listeners where they can find you, work with you, what programs you've got, um, because I know that you you have got something, you've got a one specific program that sounds fantastic. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so you can find me over on adept.org, A-D-D-E-P-T.org, um, and which is a, a blog primarily, a digital resource. Um, but then I also have um, Meltdown to Mastery, which is a digital course um, designed for ADHD brains to help manage their emotions. Um, and so in this course, I've created this five-step framework that um, that allows ADHD brains to not only access these strategies, and but they're tailor-made for ADHD brains and tailor-made to actually work in an ADHD life. Um, and not kind of be something that you have to fight against. You know, I find people often try strategies that um, maybe aren't that well made for their brains and they work for a little while. Um, but an ADHD brain is motivated differently and it'll kind of go off to the next shiny thing and that strategy falls away. Um, but if a strategy is tailor-made for an ADHD brain, even when that brain goes off to something new and shiny, um, the strategy can come along with it. And um, so I, I created this course really to bring all these strategies that I had um, I had um, crafted. They're, these are not my own strategies. They're strategies that I have kind of um, formulated to work for ADHD brands with all of my clients. I wanted to make them more accessible to a larger audience. Oh, brilliant. Well, it sounds really, really helpful. So I will make sure that we, we include all the details on the show notes. Um, thank you so much, Marcy. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I know for a fact that this is going to be really helpful for so many people. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So that's today's episode done. Did what we talk about resonate with you? I really hope you found some takeaways that may inspire you to make some small changes that enhance your daily life. And if you did find this episode insightful, please do consider sharing it. Knowledge and awareness is power, especially with ADHD. You can also head over to the show's Instagram page, which is ADHD Women's Wellbeing Pod, and join the community that's waiting for you there. And if this episode really did strike a chord, please do consider leaving us a review to enable more people who need to hear these conversations find the show. Thanks so much for joining me today and see you next time.